0: Talk 1110 and 993 WBT 105. In real time, in fake time, it's 205. Thank you, GovCo. All right, back to the schools, though. uh, Picking up on the conversation from last hour, this is uh, from NC Policy Watch, which is a a left wing organization funded by the usual left wing big donors in the state. And uh, they're kind of, they work kind of hand in glove with, I'm not going to get into the WRAL component of it. It doesn't matter. Point is, they had a write-up by Craig Childress the other day about the State Board of Education members who now, in North Carolina, they've got some concerns about who's going to be on a brand new parent advisory panel. Mask mandates and critical race theory caused parents to be active at school board meetings in recent months. Parents of children in traditional public schools should be guaranteed a larger share of the seats on a new statewide parent advisory leftist state board group. This, according to some of the members, the some of the members are the leftists on the state board of education. This is what they're very concerned about. The state superintendent, Catherine Truitt, a Republican, created this panel, a statewide parent advisory group to advise and inform state leaders and public policy officials on various aspects of education and student well-being. And the State Board of Education leftist members are like, well, wait a minute, who's going to be on that board? Who's going to be on your advisory group? We should be able to dictate that to you. We have a really weird system set up in the state, at the state level for education, leadership. You got the state board of education that are appointed by the governor. And then you have the superintendent for public instruction who's elected statewide. And so as we have seen, when you got a Democrat governor and Republican DPI superintendent, the board works at cross purposes to undermine the superintendent. So there's like turf battles all the time. This was going on with Mark Johnson still going on with Catherine Truitt. So, She sets up this parent advisory board, which, look, I don't know what the value of this advisory board is going to be, but she's free to do it. She's a superintendent of public instruction. You want to get an advisory task force together and get people to tell you what's going on in schools? Fine. I don't care. Only 33% of seats are guaranteed to parents of traditional schools, though. Only a third. Oh, my gosh. Even those students that go to public schools, traditional K-12 GovCo schools, they make up 78% of the school children. The advisory group is going to include (gasps) charter school parents, (gasps) private school parents, and (laughs) parents of homeschooled children. So the homeschool parents, that's the worst. Oh my God. How could she put these people on a panel to advise her about educational matters? They're only teaching their own kid. What do they know about education? <laughs> this is what this is what the State Board of Ed is so concerned about. So what they want to... Oh, it's like the gerrymandering argument. You want a proportionate model, a standard of proportionality applied here. Hey, uh, Board of Ed members, I'm not sure you're aware of this, but... Um, Y'all are the representatives for all of the kids and the system and the rest of the state. That's your job, guys. Oh, and also, they've got them at every county level, too. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of people that are overseeing the interests of the GovCo students and parents. Got it covered in spades. So if Catherine Truitt wants to set up an advisory panel made up predominantly of charter school parents, private school parents, and homeschoolers, then she is free to do so because guess what? That's also education. State board members say that parents who homeschool their children and send them to private schools could receive a disproportionate share of the seats. To which I say, so what? So what? It's just an advisory body. Local and state boards already represent the public schools. One hundred percent representation. One hundred percent representation. There is no school board that has a seat carved out for the local charters. There's no school board that has a seat carved out for the local private schools or the homeschoolers. You guys dominate one hundred percent of the actually, you know what? Now I'm thinking, yes, let's go to a proportionate model, shall we? Let's have all of the let's have Charlotte Mecklenburg schools, for example. Let's, let's put a seat on there. I mean, they put one on there for the student advisory position. How about a homeschool advisory position on the school board with voting rights? How about a private school? How about charter schools? How about opportunity scholarship schools? Oh yeah, that we, I mean, this is parochial schools. There should be a proportionate model applied to government K-12 boards of education. These people don't ever think of the other side of their argument. Like I said uh, uh, the other day, they never think the other team gets a turn at bat. State board vice chairman, Alan Duncan said he wishes Truett had discussed the board's makeup with state board members before Thursday's meeting. He said such a discussion might have produced a different composition of the panel. One that better reflects the students served by the state's public schools. That's your job, Alan. That's your job. You represent them. You keep doing your thing. She's doing something else. I just think that she should have consulted with us. Truett reminded Duncan, however, that she doesn't need state board approval in these things. Truett said, quote, I'm bringing this to the board as a courtesy and am in no way required to include the board in this work. (coughs) Precisely. Precisely. Pound sand, Alan. Truett said it's not the system of education that we're trying to protect. We want this council to be about the students. There's a different way of thinking about it. She's obviously aware that she's not getting feedback from certain kinds of students in the educational realm. She added that North Carolina DPI and the state board could learn why parents are leaving public schools if the panel includes parents who left. There's a shocking idea. She says, I so appreciate your candid feedback, but I feel very strongly that we do have something to learn from all parents. Again, this is at the left wing publication, ncpolicywatch.org. They then go on to quote their fellow leftists that are on the state board. And their uh, their their logic is just as sound as Allen's was. We'll take a listen in a minute. Right, the Pete Callender show continues. I'm Pete. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Pete at thepetecallendershow.com. And every time I say that, I go and I have to check to make sure I'm still logged in. Okay. Um. There's a uh, news conference going on at the transit center, or it went on at the transit center. Um, the Republican slate that's running for city council Uh. They're pitching an idea. And because they're Republicans, Democrats are like, why are you politicizing this? I'll get to that. But um, first, the school board, North Carolina State School Board of Education, had a meeting about a week week ago. And they were presented with the plan by the superintendent of public instruction, Catherine Truitt, to create an advisory group. She wanted to create this statewide parent advisory group and only 33% of the seats on that advisory group are guaranteed to parents of traditional public school students. And the lefties are very upset about this. How dare she create a parental advisory group that is not proportionately representative of the student population at large? 78% of North Carolina school kids go to K-12 government schools, and so they should have 78% of the seats on this advisory group. That's what the lefties on the State Board of Education are saying. And Catherine Truitt is saying, I don't care what you have to say about this. I'm just letting you know this is what I've created. This is just a courtesy, informational slide deck I'm giving you. Uh, This is not for approval. You have no say in this. Oh, and by the way, I will say this, not Catherine Truitt, but the state school board and the local school boards already represent 100% of those K-12 students. So... That's what makes these next comments all the more interesting. State Board of Ed member James Ford from our very own Charlotte Mecklenburg School System. He said he's concerned that the panel won't reflect the diversity of North Carolina's schools. A little more than 50 percent of the state's traditional public schools are students of color. And Ford said, my concern is about the inclusion of all parents, particularly those who are least likely to have a voice in the system. Well, those would be homeschoolers, James. Yeah, the parents who are least likely to have a voice in the system are homeschool parents. They have zero voice in the system because they checked out of it, right? Oh, you're not talking about them. You're talking just based on the color of their skin, which I would also point out once again, local school boards are reflective of this population. True, it said, the applications that parents are filling out It doesn't ask parents to share their race or ethnicity. After the panel is selected, she said she's happy to welcome further discussion. She said it's premature to have concerns about who's on the committee when the application process hasn't even closed yet. But he's already ready for it. He's already on the lookout. I just want to be sure I'm detecting every little bit of racism out there so I can accuse you of it. Keisha Clemens, who was the 2020 North Carolina Principal of the Year... At Shuford Elementary School in Newton-Conover City Schools, she said leaders must think ahead and be proactive in thinking about ways to include voices that are marginalized, like homeschoolers. No, I'm kidding. She didn't say homeschoolers. She said, quote, we have to think about who those people are, to which I say, who you calling those people? No, I'm kidding. She says we have to think about who those people are and we have to make sure to create something and design something that's going to get those voices at the table. Oh, you mean like an advisory group, maybe? The lack of thinking about race, ethnicity, and other dimensions of diversity is problematic. See, this is what happens when you start thinking through the prism always of race and other immutable characteristics, race, ethnicity, Uh, When you start thinking through the woke prism, it disables you of thinking in any other term. Everything now gets filtered through this way of thinking, through this lens. You don't even hear yourselves. You don't even realize that you are the people that are supposed to be the voice for the voiceless. That's why Governor Cooper put you on that State Board of Education. That's your job. The superintendent of public instruction elected statewide. She would like her own advisors. She is free to compile or, or construct a, a body, a group to provide that advice because she has a combative relationship with you leftists. So she would like some advice from some other people. She's going to go elsewhere to get it. Do you think that she doesn't get the educratic Line, positions, arguments, policy preferences. Do you think she doesn't get those on a daily basis? You think she's unaware? This is the thing that kills me, too, about the left. Like, they think that the reason why people on the right disagree with them is because we just haven't heard their arguments. Or we're just not aware of the issue. We just don't know what's going on. When, quite the contrary. Like I know your arguments. I am well aware of your views. I always I say unchallenged ideas are easy to hold. And these people on the left, they just sit around and it's in their own echo chamber. People on the right do it as well. And then you say something, and all of a sudden you get pushed back, and it's like the Seymour Skinner, the Prince, principal Skinner from the Simpsons meme. Could it be everybody else that's wrong, or could it be me? No, it's definitely everybody else. That's, that's the conclusion they've come to every single time. It's like, oh, it's surely all those other people. They're all wrong, not me. All right. I'm going to move on from this uh, and cover this uh, press conference now. Um, well, I mean, I'm not, we're not going live to it. It's already occurred. But the Republican slate of candidates for the Charlotte City Council went down to the transit center to talk about safety for the transit workers. You might have heard they're kind of upset. At the abuse that they've been this, uh, subjected to, the crime that is occurring on the buses and at the transit center. Yeah, crime, guys. Maybe that defund the police wasn't the best approach to combating some injustices. Just going to throw that out there. News Talk 1110 and ninety nine three WBT. All right. Charlotte City Councilman Tark Bakari, Republican, sending out a tweet saying after the devastating loss of a dearly loved cat's bus driver and hearing from the public about the vulnerability of those that keep Charlotte moving. The Charlotte City Council Republican Slate has been working like a startup inspired by their mantra while others talk about it. We take action. And then he's got a link to an invitation for today at 1:30. Which was an hour ago, in fake time. Um, <laughs> sorry, but uh, the the name of the press conference was called "Coming Through for Our Drivers." Catch drivers are the backbone of our city. It's time we have their back too. When others talk, we take action. Join us for a press conference reveal, and uh, then it says summer is coming. Um, what they announced? Let me see here if I've got. Yeah, here's Kyle Lubke says the Republican slate is out here at the transit center to talk about safety for our transit workers and riders. Come on out. Uh, So they had a bunch of turnout. I haven't seen any coverage though. Um, But I did see in about an hour ago, Jennifer Roberts, the former County commissioner, chairwoman, mayor who brought us the bathroom bill. And... um, I think, is she running for something else? No, let me click her profile. Are you running for something else, Jennifer, former mayor? Nah, nah, nah. nah, Longtime community activist. Um so she responds to Councilman Bukhari's tweet talking about how that you know they're taking action where others aren't. She says our catch drivers deserve respect, protection, and action. Public safety is a top priority for government but why politicize it and make campaign points from pain? Really? Uh ma'am, you are aware you're a democrat, right? Have you have you seen the way democrats react after literally every shooting? It takes 6 votes on Charlotte City Council to enact policy, which means by definition it will have bipartisan support. Correct? And maybe Mr. Bakari has been trying to get some of your democratic friends on board with the idea that they unveiled today, which, as I understand it, is to create bulletproof enclosures that are customized to sort of slip right into the existing driver area on the buses, and that was the that was what they were unveiling today uh, at 1:30. Again, I wasn't there; I happened to be uh, tied up at 1:30. So I was not able to attend, but it's my understanding that this is the big reveal or was the big reveal that they have uh, gone about doing the work necessary to get this item, this uh, the bulletproof glass fabricated and delivered. And they're going to be doing some final assembly that they were going to do some final assembly at the press conference. That was the intention. I hope it went well. Are you saying then that the Republicans should not tout that they have provided a solution for the cats drivers? Are you saying that they shouldn't take credit for that? Oh, I see you want bipartisan credit for that. So it doesn't make Democrats look bad that the Republicans figured out something and were were responsive to what the cats operators were demanding, which was safety on their buses. And if I'm assuming if you're inside the, the enclosure that's bulletproof. I got to believe that that also protects you from other types of attacks, generally speaking. We'll see. All right. I called it the fake time. So let me let me pay this off because I don't know if I'm going to have time if I if I waste too much time talking about other stuff. Scott Lincecum at Cato. He's also a uh, I think he's a professor up at uh, Duke University as well. He is a big anti DST Daylight Saving Time. Anti-Daylight Saving Time. And I got to tell you, the older I have gotten, and the more it messes with my sleep clock, my circadian rhythm, the more I agree with him. The more I learn about Daylight Saving Time, the less I like it. Daylight Saving Time, he calls it an onerous state-time mandate detrimental to public health and safety, manipulated by corporatists, supported by a handful of childless, insomniac socialites, and based on so-called science that was debunked decades ago. Indeed, even the name Daylight Saving Time is a lie. The ritual merely shifts time. It doesn't save anything, except perhaps a few jobs on K Street and in the Florida leisure industry. Perhaps the easiest and most obvious criticism of Daylight Saving Time is that the policy has utterly failed to achieve its primary aim. Energy conservation. It's literally the name. Originally adopted in 1918 during World War I, then reinstated during World War II, and finally made permanent under the Uniform Time Act, or as I call it, the the UDA, in 1966, daylight saving time was intended to somehow save electricity by requiring less light in the evenings. However, real-world studies repeatedly have shown that not only does it not conserve energy, but it may actually waste energy. Skipping ahead... He says it is anti health and science and imperils Americans health and safety. For starters, the, the semi-annual time change results in all sorts of maladies in the days thereafter, car crashes, pedestrian deaths, workplace injuries, heart attacks, strokes, depression, and quote adverse medical events because of human error. Yeah, people are groggy. Especially when we, you know, we spring ahead like we did this weekend. Timekeeping And thus, our clocks have evolved over centuries to have the sun peak overhead at noon in most places. But daylight saving time radically shifts the clock so that the sun peaks much later in the day. And that screws with our internal clocks. Also, it's anti-family. Misguided advocates often claim that unnaturally light evenings benefit the kids because they get to play outside for longer periods of time. But this argument falls flat for several reasons. First, the dark mornings endanger those very same kids. I mean, if little Timmy gets run over by a car waiting at the bus stop, he can't play baseball till 9 o'clock that night, right? I mean, unless he's very resilient. Anyway, also decreasing the child's sleep quality, right? Because the time changes, the dark mornings and bright evenings make it harder for parents to get the kids up for school. Harder to go to bed at night. That messes up the quality of their sleep, and that destroys meticulously scripted sleep schedules and dramatically increases family strife. And he says, trust me on that one. None of this is good for kids or their parents' health or sanity. No wonder, then, that parents, well, the good ones at least, hate daylight saving time with such passion. (laughs) Also, it is anti-economy. I'll get to that one up next. Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Pete Callender here just for one more segment. Going over this Scott speech, uh, Lincecum piece from Cato.org. It's the website. Uh, he's also a professor up at uh, Duke University. He is a libertarian economist guy. And uh, hence his writing at Cato. I think he's an associate professor. I think is. Technically, the title. Anyway, he is a big anti DSTer. He is opposed to daylight saving time. He is working to get it undone with every piece uh, that he writes about it. And this one, where he goes through all of the claims that are made by the pro DSTers or big DST, uh, he goes through and he debunks all of the lies that have supported this fraudulent holiday. Or it's not a holiday. What what would you call it? Event? Lie. It's just a lie. So daylight saving time doesn't actually save you any time. It just shifts it. And it doesn't actually reduce energy. Might actually increase consumption, as some studies have shown. It actually negatively impacts people's health because it throws your seradian rhythm all out of whack, your internal sleep clocks all out of whack, makes people... Uh, you know, groggy when you lose the hour and that leads to more accidents. And you can see this. I've done, uh, I've done this topic in years past and I've seen the research and you see these spikes in, you know, heart attacks and strokes and accidents and all these things in the hospitals right after either clocks go forward or clocks go backwards. So it actually is detrimental to your health. But finally, it is also anti-economy. The whole point was, we get the extra time, so that means we're more productive, because we got more daylight. That's, that's part of the big theory, right? That's a lie, too. DST's supposed economic benefits have also been wildly oversold, he says. Sure, the fat cat golf industry and its leisure industry co-conspirators, they might benefit from unnaturally light evenings, but... Those gains come at many others' expense for starters. Companies that could benefit from longer, lighter mornings, they get screwed. What cafes? Right? Fitness centers. Airports. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to go to the gym? Well, just like ever in general. But wouldn't it be nice, nice to go to the gym and it be daylight? You know, if it's not. And lose the extra hour into darkness, right? Then there are broader economic harms too. The semi-annual time switch, for example, is associated with decreased worker productivity, aka cyberloafing. Also, missed workdays due to injury, financial market losses, and harsher criminal sentencing by sleep deprived judges. <laughs> Thus researchers have found That daylight saving times, time change alone costs the American economy hundreds of millions of dollars every year. Quote, and we don't regain that productivity when the fall change adds an hour back to the schedules. You never make it up. You never make it up. I think I'm just going to have to, I'm going to have to maybe go to the boss and get everybody's time slot shifted to accommodate for the daylight saving time. So I like, go, oh, it's like I would now have to be on 11 a.m. to 2, and Brett would come in. He start an hour earlier. He'd start 2 to 5. Everybody shifts, so we're all staying on the same sleep clocks. It's for our own safety. It's for our health. Do you want us to die? Don't answer that. Okay, summing it up. Daylight saving time has not achieved its primary public policy goal, he says, which was energy conservation. Might actually undermine it. It also imposes significant environmental, health, safety, family, and economic harms along the way. Despite these facts, lobbying by powerful industry groups and a handful of late sleeping lollygaggers not only has protected this failed government program, which annually steals an hour of our lives and months later returns it interest free, but has actually expanded it, thereby thrusting tens of millions of American workers and families into abject darkness for even longer. You can read that at Cato.org. Yeah, the more I learn about uh, Daylight Saving Time, the less, uh, the less I like it. He, and he does note that Americans have, in fact, beaten back the Daylight Saving Time menace, not once, but twice. Abandoning it after World War II, it proved unpopular. And then again in the 1970s, but that but it's back now. Like we can do this. You know, Jason Sane, uh state representative Lincoln County, uh he has he has introduced some state legislation that would get us off of the DST train. I mean the session's over now, so it's not going anywhere. Kinda like me this morning, trying to get out of bed an hour earlier. Um let me see here, one last oh, let me All right, I'll see if I can get to the high points here. Again, too much highlighting I did. David Drucker at the Washington Examiner. Headline, his act is wearing thin. North Carolina Republicans gripe about Madison Cawthorn. Of course, none of them are doing so like really on the record. But Cawthorn is stumbling at home and abroad as his bid to play Republican kingmaker falls flat with voters and alienates colleagues. The 26-year-old first-termer, North Carolina Republican, saw both candidates he endorsed in Texas' March 1 GOP congressional primaries. They both lost, even didn't, didn't even make the runoff. And so that's seen as a failure of his because he went in there and endorsed these two and they, lo- uh, they lost. In his own state, the Republicans with whom Cawthorn, Cawthorn serves are smarting from his aborted attempt to switch districts in the wake of the... Uh, redistricting, and what a lot of people saw as a half-baked, hubristic campaign to anoint the GOP nominee in 11 of our 14 congressional districts. There are quite a few people in positions of power inside the GOP that did not really appreciate Cawthorn's map where he put himself in as winner and named winners in all of these other districts. Didn't take too kindly to it. All right, I'll pick pick that back up again tomorrow. Stay tuned. Brett Winterbull is coming up next. I'll join you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.